0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we continue our series on Homer's Iliad with a lecture on Book 9. Book 9 is simply extraordinary. As Malcolm Wilcox says, quote, in many ways it is the finest in the Iliad and is a self-contained whole, end quote. To look at Book 9 from a bird's-eye view, <clears throat> we see Nestor propose that Agamemnon make amends with Achilles. Agamemnon agrees and puts together a staggering, shining ransom. Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax are selected to be part of the embassy that asks Achilles to return. Each man makes a speech, and Achilles offers each a reply. To Odysseus, he says that he will return home tomorrow. After Phoenix's speech, his stance softens, and he says that he will make his decision in the morning. After Ajax's speech, he says that he will not assist the Achaeans, until Hector begins to set fire to the Myrmidon ships, meaning that he won't sail home and that he has ultimately decided in favor of a short and glorious life rather than a long life without undying fame. The results of the conversation are then reported back to Agamemnon. Now, to begin at the beginning of book nine, the Achaeans find their hearts torn as if their hearts were water moved by crosswinds. As Agamemnon brings out, Zeus promised that the Achaeans would bring the walls of Troy crumbling down. They must have thought that perhaps they were near the end of the war and were at the cusp of victory. And now they find the Trojans beating them back and so self-assured that they do not retreat behind their walls at the end of the day, but rather camp beyond those walls, and so make the besiegers the besieged. In light of this difficulty, Agamemnon, just as he did in Book 2, tells the Achaeans it is now time to sail home. Rather than cutting and running, the the Achaeans are silent, and Diomedes, a man whose virtue has shown forth resplendently in the preceding books, calls Agamemnon a coward and insists that he will remain here, whether the other Achaeans stay or not, because he knows that they sailed with God, which is to say they sailed with divine support, and even if Agamemnon's faith wanes, Diomedes' faith in Providence remains strong. Nestor is the next to speak, and he gently chides Diomedes. As he does so often, Nestor calmly directs the Achaean's attention to the most immediate necessities. They need to set out food, and they need to post sentries. And a quiet underlying concern that Nestor may have is how to manage the Achaean coalition over the long term. Agamemnon still has the most men and has the Scepter of Zeus having a revolt against Agamemnon's leadership won't be of any benefit to the Achaeans. This concern might explain the gentle rebuke that he offers Diomedes. The leaders retire to Agamemnon's shelter, and Nestor, as ever, with his eye on what is needful, now proposes that Agamemnon make amends with Achilles so that he can return to the battle. He does this not in front of the whole army, but only in front of the other leaders. Agamemnon assents to Nestor's proposal, and goes on to list all the items in the priceless ransom that he offers Achilles. There are many items of gold, women, among them Achilles' prize, Briseis, an opportunity to marry one of Agamemnon's daughters, as well as seven citadels. And he ends this long and beautiful list by saying, All this I would extend to him if he will end his anger. Let him submit to me. Only the god of death is so relentless. Death submits to no one. So, mortals hate him most of all the gods. Let him bow down to me. I am the greater king. I am the elderborn. I claim the greater man. Now, we can hold on to these words because their absence will be important later when Odysseus quotes Agamemnon's speech about the various uh, prizes that will be given word for word, but he omits these last uh, four lines in particular uh, when he reports this to Achilles. Nestor who seems to be de facto in charge at the moment, selects the members of the embassy, Phoenix, the childhood teacher of Achilles, Ajax, the greatest warrior of the Achaeans save for Achilles, and tactful royal Odysseus. This impressive collection of men make their way toward Achilles' shelter at once, and we see that Achilles is playing the lyre, singing the famous deeds of fighting heroes. In this way, he imitates Homer, Insofar as Achilles is soon going to offer deep reflections on the best way of life for a human being, it is fitting that Homer has Achilles imitate his own activity. It prepares us to ask how close Achilles is able to approximate to approximate to approximate Homeric wisdom. Now, before we look at the speeches in Book Nine, maybe we can review some of the things that happened earlier in the Iliad that sort of mm, are in the background of Odysseus, or sorry, of Achilles' mind. Uh, as he's thinking in this chapter, or in this book. So um, before we turn to Odysseus' speech to Achilles, let's lay out again why Achilles has withdrawn from the fighting. In book one, Apollo set forth a plague against the Achaeans because Agamemnon refused to return the daughter of a priest of Apollo back to the priest. Achilles gathered the Achaeans together in assembly and had the seer Calchas bring this account to light. Agamemnon reluctantly relents but says that he can't be without a female prize of high caliber and suggests that he might take one from among the leading Achaeans. Achilles assumes that Agamemnon would take his prize and wonders why he fights for Agamemnon when the Trojans have done nothing to him. Achilles seeks to kill him, but he is stopped by Athena. And so he tells Agamemnon, Someday, I swear, a yearning for Achilles will strike Achaea's sons and all your armies. But then, Atreides, harrowed as you will be, nothing you do can save you. Not when your hordes of fighters drop and died, cut down by the hands of man killing Hector. Then, then you will tear your heart out, desperate, raging that you have disgraced the best of the Achaeans. End quote. At the close of Book One, he doubles down on his words to Agamemnon by calling on his mother Thetis to ask Zeus for help. He says, Persuade him somehow to help the Trojan cause to pin the Achaeans back against their ships, trap them round the bay, and mow them down, so all can reap the benefits of their king. So even mighty Atreides can see how mad he was to disgrace Achilles, the best, or see how mad he was to disgrace Achilles, the best of the Achaeans. In some sense, then, the embassy will have a difficult time persuading Achilles to return, because that which causes them to seek his help is precisely what he wished for. The other core concern that is animating his thinking are the two possible fates that his mother told him about that he articulates in response to Odysseus here in Book 9. Quote, If I hold out here and I lay siege to Troy, my journey home is gone, but my glory never dies. If I voyage back to the fatherland I love, my pride, my glory dies. True, but the life that's left in me will be long, and the stroke of death will not come on me quickly. End quote. Achilles may have doubts about the possibility of achieving undying fame, precisely because he's being dishonored while alive. If the fame doesn't emerge when his rare deeds are most manifest to all, seen by people as opposed to heard about, how can he count on receiving fame in the future when his deeds start to fade from the minds of men? This background should prepare us to see how Achilles arrived at the position that he does when he responds to Odysseus' speech, so with that said, let's turn to Odysseus' speech. Achilles receives his dear friends, and a feast is prepared. Odysseus toasts to Achilles' health, and then begins his attempt to persuade him. Strikingly, or so it seemed to me, he begins by mentioning that he could have feasted just as well with Agamemnon as he now feasts with Achilles. That is, he presents Achilles and Agamemnon as equals. This is a way of presenting things that would probably not appeal to either Agamemnon or to Achilles, since both of them think that they are the better man. But Odysseus chooses not to present himself as a partisan of either of their interests, narrowly understood. Perhaps this is done just as Nestor's actions were done earlier, with a view, or with a long-term view, to keeping the Achaean coalition together. Agamemnon needs to lead, and Achilles needs to fight. Evidence of this being the case can be found in the words that Odysseus uttered back in book two, when he struck down the ugly Thersites. That is evidence that Odysseus is sort of managing this coalition that threatens to fall apart. He said to Thersites, the ugly man who more or less mirrored uh, Achilles' words in critiquing Agamemnon, uh, Odysseus said this to Thersites: no way will all the Greeks rule as kings here. Multi-rulership is not a good thing. Let one be ruler, one king, to whom the son of crooked counseling Zeus has given the scepter, so that he may do the planning for the people. End quote. The split between Agamemnon and Achilles represents the kind of split sovereignty problem that Odysseus is ultimately trying to mend, so that the nine years spent in Troy so far don't come to nothing. It is also interesting to note that as we see later in Book 9, Odysseus played a role in recruiting Achilles in the first place for the war in Troy. He is, as Eva Brand says, quote, the universal ambassador, the natural diplomat. In his own correct estimation, thoughtful planning, uh, thoughtful planning is his great excellence. And he candidly concedes that Achilles is better with the spear. He is the statesman of the Iliad, End quote. <clears throat> so uh, Odysseus then points out that Achilles was bred by the gods and that the Achaeans are facing stark disasters. Odysseus plays up Hector's destructive power and insists that the Achaeans need Achilles to deliver them from a destruction that, once done, cannot be undone. He presents the Achaeans' great need and then turns to the speech that he inherited from Agamemnon to show Achilles that he will be richly rewarded for saving them. Odysseus enumerates the good things that Agamemnon promised to Achilles, though, as I said before, he omits the final lines of Agamemnon's speech in which he notes, that Achilles' acceptance of the ransom entails submission to Agamemnon. Instead, Odysseus points out that if Agamemnon's gifts are unappealing, then Achilles should pity the Achaeans' fate and know that he will be honored like a god by the men for saving them from Hector's pitiless blade. Now, even before Achilles speaks, we can anticipate reasons that he might object to this offer. One reason that Achilles might reject this priceless ransom is precisely because it's not priceless. Surely it is a nearly unimaginable amount of wealth, but nevertheless, it can be counted. Aristocratic morality is concerned with quality and not quantity. You can't put a price on dishonoring the best of the Achaeans. Second, uh, a scholar named Peter Ernsdorf notes um, well, here's how he puts it, um, or I guess I'm putting his words in my words, but he says that one additional reason that Achilles might reject the ransom is because of how mercenary it is. That is, it isn't as if the Achaeans panicked and immediately reached out to Achilles after dishonoring him. Rather, they waited until they started to lose before they came to honor Achilles. Surely such a self-interested offer of prizes um, in this way wouldn't impress Achilles. Um, third, as we noted before, what that which is happening to the Achaeans right now is precisely what Achilles prayed for. The gods have chosen to honor him when the human beings failed to. Now, with those possible reasons for rejection in mind, let's carefully examine the reasons that Achilles offers for why he rejects this offer. Achilles begins by saying, I hate that man, like the very gates of death, who says one thing but hides another in his heart. Is this an indication that he's aware that Odysseus omitted lines from Agamemnon's speech? That is, perhaps Achilles couldn't imagine Agamemnon offering such gifts without a concomitant claim uh, that he Agamemnon is still best and that accepting those gifts is an indication of that Agamemnon is best. Or a different reason would be: by calling or by saying that he hates lies, is he suggesting, is Achilles suggesting, that Agamemnon wouldn't really follow through with the gifts? Or is he calling Agamemnon a liar? inasmuch as he has given Achilles a gift, Briseis, and then taken away that same gift. However that may be, Achilles next offers what might be, rightly, his most famous lines from the Iliad. Quote, No, what lasting thanks in the long run for warring with our enemies, on and on, no end, one and the same lot for the man who hangs back and the man who battles hard. The same honor waits for the coward and the brave. They both go down to death, the fighter who shirks, the one who works to exhaustion. And what's laid up for me? What pittance? Nothing. And after suffering hardships, year in, year out, staking my life on the mortal risks of war, end quote. Okay, to start with, Achilles notes that there is no lasting thanks for the warrior. Perhaps he means that no thanks or no reward extends beyond death into the afterlife. As far as he can tell, there are no rewards for noble, virtuous actions. The courageous and the cowards both die. <clears throat> There's no correspondence between what we deserve and what we get. Agamemnon's choice to dishonor Achilles has led him to reflect on whether or not virtue is good for a human being. If it fulfill, that is to say, it may not fulfill its promise to make us happy. At least in this moment, Achilles has drawn the conclusion that if virtue is not rewarded, then long life becomes the optimal goal for a human being. But Achilles, even in this moment, is not able to fully believe in his argument. On one hand, Achilles seems to completely reject the life of honor seeking or of virtue as not choice worthy for a good man. However, if or to the extent that he evinces any anger at all at the Achaeans and Agamemnon, it would be an indication that he believes himself to be deprived of something good, which he takes himself to be deserving of, which is to say he thinks to himself, honor is not a good worth pursuing on one hand, and he is angry at the Achaeans for depriving him of honor on the other. This confusion that I've outlined must at least partially account for why Achilles doesn't leave in the end. He hasn't made his own mind up yet. However this may be, Achilles' next move is to offer a striking simile. Quote, Like a mother bird, hurrying morsels back to her unfledged young. Whatever she may catch, but it's all starvation wages for herself. So, for me. End quote. There's a lot to say about the simile. We could schematize it in the following way. Achilles is to the Achaeans as a mother bird is to unfledged young, that is to say birds that can't fly yet because of their youth. Like the mother bird, Achilles feeds his men who, without his aid, would be unable to feed themselves. The simile seems principally designed to bring out the asymmetry in responsibility shouldered and to be humiliating to the Achaeans who thought that they could take care of themselves. At the same time though, if we take the simile literally, and maybe maybe this is taking it too literally, then also intensifies, wittingly or not, Achilles' cruelty. If the Achaeans are like birds who can't fly, then to abandon them would be especially cruel, akin, as a simile suggests, to casting aside what seems like a natural duty, what the mother bird would owe to her young. Achilles then expands on the injustice of his situation. He holds himself to be primarily responsible, for having sacked 23 Trojan cities. Agamemnon, though, receives the lion's share of the spoils. This much injustice Achilles found himself able to tolerate. He doesn't expect a perfect correspondence between desert and reward, but the idea that he would be singled out for greater dishonor is too much for Achilles to bear. This leads him to wonder why he should bother fighting for the Achaeans. But to put it this way is to take a small step back from his earlier more radical claim. Before he seemed to be raising a kind of universal question, why fight at all? Now he raises the more particular question, why should I fight for a people or for a ruler who dishonors me? Before he called honor he, before he called the honor-winning life as such into question, for he went to its foundation. What if there is not a sufficient correspondence between those who are genuinely worthy of honor and the honors that are bestowed to them. Now, to repeat, he takes a step back from that argument here, and he reemphasizes that Agamemnon has, quote, torn my honor from my hands, robbed me, lied to me. Don't try me now. I know him too well. He'll never win me over if Achilles wanted to be consistent with the first radical argument that he made against honor, he should be saying something like this. I'm not going to fight because noble deeds are not rewarded, and sometimes even the most deserving are unfairly punished. Therefore, I seek a long and quiet life. And not only that, but even if the deserving are honored, they will meet a death which honor cannot protect them from. So that would be a way to Consistently keep to the kind of radical argument that he proposed at first. But instead, he moved back into the honor loving frame of reference and instead says something like this I won't fight for Agamemnon because he dishonors me. But this argument obviously rests on the idea that honor is good. Perhaps this is to go a step too far, but it seems to me that the love of honor is inextricably bound up with a longing for immortality. Inasmuch as we hope that if our fame is undying, if our name continues to ring in the minds of men for all time, that somehow this will redound to us in the afterlife, or somehow ensure our immortality. Is it possible that the information that Odysseus brings him has gently stirred within him hopes that perhaps he can secure the immortality he craves, since the gods have brought about precisely the situation that he prayed for? that they have stepped in to straighten out human capriciousness? However this may be, Achilles takes pleasure in pointing out the plight of the Achaeans. He notes that his presence was sufficient to keep Hector behind the walls. He will sail home in the morning, uh, or so he says now. He offers two final justifications for his departure that reflect and confirm the confusion in his thinking that we noted earlier. Achilles calls the the trip to Troy insane. And perhaps it is insane if honor is not a choice-worthy good, and even if it is, if it is unfairly distributed, then that would make the journey insane. But he doesn't end it there. He then adds that he will take home his remaining plunder, all except his prize of honor, Briceus, which is to say he is still rankled by being deprived of something, honor, that he had initially called into question. Achilles then brings out why Agamemnon's gifts, impressive as they are, are in no way proper compensation for the blow to Achilles' honor. First, as we anticipated before, Achilles makes it as clear as possible that the number of the gifts is not something that adds weight to Agamemnon's apology. They could be as numerous as the grains of sand on the earth, and they would mean nothing. Further, The prospect of marrying one of Agamemnon's daughters is not, under these circumstances, a prize. No. And Achilles holds his life to be worth more than this. And he then calls our attention to his famous choice that we had outlined before. If he stays in Troy, his glory will never die. And if he leaves and goes home, his pride, his glory dies. At this moment, we see that he has chosen the long life. Not completely without glory, but with glory that will fade from the minds of men. But inasmuch as we saw a confusion in his thinking before, he might still be vulnerable to persuasion. And so now we turn to Phoenix's speech, his teacher. Um, Many people see this speech as overly wordy and blustering. But we should say at the outset that Phoenix is the principal educator of Achilles. He is an exile from his homeland. Um, And he was so impressive when he shows up uh, in front of Achilles' father, Peleus, that he was asked to provide this education for the prince for Achilles. So we don't want to necessarily assume that Phoenix... Now, now maybe it would be too much, and I don't even insist upon this, that Phoenix is some kind of esoteric philosopher or something like that. He could be, but I don't know that he is. Um, But the fact that he became Achilles' teacher in this way <clears throat> and that Achilles has turned out to be so impressive would entitle us to examine his speech carefully and to wonder whether or not he has a design that, underlines, that underlies what appears to be mere bluster or self-indulgent long-windedness. He begins in tears and is astonished by Achilles' choice. He calls out Achilles' heart, saying it was overpowered by anger in other words, that Achilles is weaker than his passion. In some sense, Phoenix is outlining the story that will be told of Achilles once he heads home. The stories men tell of him will dwell more on his weakness than on his strength. Phoenix then details why he could never leave Achilles, so that if Achilles does leave, Phoenix will accompany him. He notes that he taught Achilles how to be a man of words and a man of action. Later in the speech, Phoenix notes that he cared for Achilles back when he was a baby, spitting up wine. I think that the intended effect of Phoenix in mentioning these things is to emphasize the deep bond that he has with Achilles, and that if or to the extent that Achilles feels the strength of that bond, he might feel some obligation to listen to the man who helped him become who he is. An additional thought, and this might not be Phoenix's intent is that he has brought to light a time of life in which all human beings are weak, uncontrollably spitting up and in need of a mother bird to take care of them. Uh, And there's another time in life uh, which we again begin to lose control of ourselves, and that is old age. This is somewhat speculative then, but could Phoenix be highlighting that old age isn't all that is cracked up to be? That to extend mere life is an error when glory is a possibility? That might not be the case, but at any rate, after Phoenix speaks of his education of Achilles, he tells his own story of how he came to be with Achilles in the first place. Phoenix's father had a mistress, and it drove his father's wife crazy. So she implored Phoenix to lay with the mistress so that he might kill the mistress's taste for older men. It works the next, <clears throat> the next part of his tale parallels Achilles' earlier actions. Phoenix's father curses him, hoping that he will never have a child. in light of this curse, Phoenix wished to drive the sharp bronze through his father, just as Achilles had wished to drive the sharp bronze through Agamemnon. In both cases, a god prevents the <clears throat> these hoped-for killings. Something that differs in Phoenix's case is that he, pers- he is persuaded by a god that his decision would be a poor one because of what people would say about him after he would do it. This confirms our thought from before that Phoenix may be subtly trying to intimate to Achilles that the stories that people will tell about him if he goes home are not stories that he will enjoy hearing. Earlier, <clears throat> it was about his weakness in light of his anger. His anger overpowers him. Um, whereas in this case, Phoenix highlights uh, that bad things would be said about him should he not do what he thought uh was best to do. So we know that Achilles is confused about about what the status of honor or glory is for a human being. If Phoenix was too direct in telling Achilles that he won't like the stories that will be told when he goes home, perhaps Achilles would have powerfully resummoned his radical argument against honor. But By embedding the concern with honor into a story about himself, Phoenix quietly raises these questions for Achilles in a way that allows him to privately consider the matter in his mind, rather than suffering the humiliation of having to change his mind all at once in the face of contradictions. Phoenix notes, then, that ruin, with a capital R, and so as a godlike force, usually outstrips prayer. But if in this instance prayer has gotten to Achilles before ruin has, he should soften his iron heart so that the prayers themselves don't turn from forgiveness to wishing for ruin themselves. Phoenix calls on Achilles to defend his friends and notes that while no one could blame Achilles for being angry before, they very well might feel differently after this entreaty that he rejoin the Achaeans. And Phoenix asks Achilles not to be insensitive to the vast treasures he is in line to receive. One might have thought that Phoenix had said enough. And many less experienced students of the Iliad at this point are inclined to just say that Phoenix is a blustering, long-winded, and sentimental fool who doesn't know when to shut up. But we aim to be more patient students. Let's carefully turn to the last part of the speech where he recalls a story about a people called the Curites fighting the Aetolians. The story resembles the Trojan War, with the Aetolians <clears throat> playing the part of the Trojans and the Curites playing the part of the Achaeans, although there seems to be a slight reversal at the end, just as there's been a reversal in the way that the Trojans have started to besiege the Achaeans. The reason that they are fighting is because Artemis sent a wild boar, the Caledonian boar, to punish a man named Oeneus for failing to make the proper offerings to her. A man named Meleager, who seems to be a stand in for Achilles, rallies hunters from 12 cities to kill the boar. Once the boar is dead, a war begins in order to win the spoils from the boar, its head and fur. Meleager's foes have a difficult time holding their ground when he is on the field, but he is eventually overcome by great anger at his mother, Althea and retreats from the battle to lay with his wife Cleopatra. This is more or less an inversion of Patroclus's name. Cleos meaning something like undying fame, Patra, father. Um, So it sort of reverses it. Uh, This name that means something like father's glory. So Maliagor seems to represent Achilles, Cleopatra seems to represent Patroclus, and Alpheus seems to represent Agamemnon as the person who makes him angry. Although somebody suggested to me that perhaps Althea could in some sense also at the same time maybe represent Thetis, insofar as Achilles wishes he hadn't been born to such a short life, that this could be a source of his anger as well. Meleager is offered gifts to entice him into fighting, but he refuses, just as Achilles has at least here initially refused the gifts. And only Meliagor only assists his people at the last moment before their city is burned and plundered. He saves his people, but allows them to suffer the maximum amount before doing so. And now, in this way, he's he's compelled to forfeit the treasure offered to him before. The people don't offer it again. This last part is what Phoenix emphasizes the most, that if Achilles returns to battle without gifts, which could potentially happen later, although we know it doesn't, he does receive the gifts later after he returns when Patroclus dies, um... But Phoenix really wants to insist that there will be a reduction of the honor that he will receive. So what is going on in this bizarre story with all these parallels? I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have been able to really piece this all together. I feel like there's a little bit more happening than I can see, but I could at least say this. Like before, it could be the case that Phoenix wants Achilles to catch sight of what he looks like to others in an attempt to persuade him indirectly to consider their arguments. Perhaps Maliagar is meant to look somewhat ridiculous or needlessly cruel. Perhaps as well, though, we can take Phoenix at his word. Maybe we should take Phoenix literally. Maybe Achilles might actually like shiny things. Um, But so much for Phoenix's speech. Um, And at the end of Phoenix's speech, Achilles says that he will decide in the morning and invites uh, Phoenix to stay with him that evening. We turn then to the shortest speech, which is Ajax's. His speech is the shortest, and it is the sort, and it is sort of said as everybody's rising to go. He almost begins his speech with a kind of like, all right, Achilles, I guess we got to go. He appears appears in the first part of his speech to be resigned to Achilles not returning. But then he moves to shame Achilles somewhat. Other men, as Ajax says, uh, have accepted a blood price ransom for having their brother or child murdered, and even lived in the same land as the murderer, which is to say some kind of price can be offered that somehow makes up for uh, the crime. And if that is so, why can't Achilles accept this ransom? After all, Ajax insists, Briseis is just a girl. Achilles responds by saying that Ajax's speech is well said, and after his own heart, or mostly so. He is now firmly back in an honor-loving frame of reference, as he calls attention to how Agamemnon treated him like a vagabond in front of everyone. His anger at Agamemnon snubbing him in this fuels both his decision now not to leave, but also, as Meliagor had done before him, to stay in a way that will cause the Achaeans the maximum amount of suffering possible, without completely losing the war, as Achilles will return to fighting only once Hector makes his way to the Myrmidon Myrmidon ships, gutting them with fire. Okay, well, book nine, a lovely book. Uh, I think that's all I have for now. Montana, out.